I got to tell you a brief, very brief story about the first time that I met Dr. Quarles. We were at an ETS meeting <clears throat> in San Francisco, Evangelical Theological Society, and and the uh, the the conference was taking place in a large downtown hotel. I do not do not remember uh, which hotel. I'm not quite sure what year, but it was must have been in the early to mid 90s. And um, my a friend of mine and I had had procured a room <clears throat> for us to stay in. And when we arrived there, we received uh, a phone call from someone else who is a, a common friend, uh, teaches at New Orleans Baptist Seminary. And he asked us the question, do you have room for anybody else? Because they are out of rooms at the hotel. And we said, well, we only have one double bed, and we're already kind of under a deal of consternation about how to handle that. My my friend figured out that you could put the sheets over one person and under the other one, and you wouldn't touch hairy legs that way. Uh, but we said, you know, it's a big room, and so if we can find a way. And so we contacted housekeeping, and they brought a, a uh, rollaway bed and then folded the couch out in, and made it a bed made it into a bed, and that's where I met Dr. Quarles for the first time. And uh, he kind of still has a baby face, but he really had a baby face 20 years ago. And uh, I never forget, here's my one, yes, you were 10 years old. (laughs) I'll never forget this. He was sitting at the little table in the room that night, and he had taken his electric shaving razor apart very, very slowly, very, very carefully, and had a little brush that he was sweeping the excess stubble from the inside of the brush. And he must have spent 45 minutes. And I remember looking at him thinking to myself, he must be a great Greek scholar. Anybody that can be that patient. For me, it's run, put it under the sink and run it for a couple of seconds and use it again tomorrow. But uh, we have enjoyed great fellowship uh, off and on throughout the years since then. As uh, Dr. Quarles indicated, I have had an interest for a number of years in looking at the interface between um, the whole issue of politics and economics and the faith. Politics, economics, and the church. He mentioned our big book. Most people buy this to be a doorstop. And it's an expensive doorstop, but it does work quite well. Uh, it's called Seeking the City, Wealth, Poverty, and Political Economy in Christian Perspective. And we truly, really kind of tried to cover everything, which is uh, probably why not too many people have read through the entire book. So buy it, read whatever part the Spirit leads, and if He leads you to give four or five hundred copies to other people, please do that as well. Uh, this little book came out of the Seeking the City book. This is by me. Uh, Acton Institute a couple of years ago decided to publish what they called primers on faith work and economics. One from a Baptist, one from a Pentecostal, one from a Wesleyan, one from the Reformed perspective. And they approached me about doing the Baptist perspective. And so uh, because I had spent so much time on this, I was able to write this in about 30 minutes or a couple of months at least. But it's a short work that deals with the kinds of things I'm going to talk about 
here tonight. Um, I've had friends tell me that they have given this book to their children who were in high school and that it made a huge difference in the the way that they understood um, the issues of wealth and work and faith in a political system. And, And that was my goal, to write for about a 16 or 17 or 18 year old person. So what I want to do here, and uh, I wasn't quite sure, I apparently did not read my emails carefully enough over the last two weeks. I came ready to talk for about eight hours. I'm not going to talk for eight hours, at least not to you, right? I can talk all I want to in my sleep tonight. But I do want to introduce us to both the concept of what is politics and the concept of what is economics, bring them together and talk for a few minutes about political economy, and then talk about how we, as Christian people, and even as churches, uh, relate to the political economy around us. Now, politics, again, if you've had a basic course in in civics when you were in high school, uh, much of this will be uh, not new to you. But I just want to take a few minutes here and say some things about the evolution of political theory. The um, political theory in the West is normally assigned to the great Greek philosophers of the uh, 4th and 5th century. And that would be Plato and Aristotle. They wrote in a context. Plato wrote his uh, most important political work, The Republic, in the context of Athenian democracy. Now, Athenian democracy was very different from the kind of democratic form of government that we have today. And that is that in Athenian democracy, you had a people who had the franchise, and those would, be, would consist of free men over a certain age, and there were different gradations of ages where Uh, You could be involved. If you were at least 20, you could vote in the forum. It would be at least 30 to be elected to some kind of an office. And and Plato wrote his book, The Republic, in critique of Athenian democracy. His basic point, as he comes down to the end of uh, his work on the Republic, is that it's not hard to tell what's wrong with this system because, after all, it is this system that costs the life of the greatest man who ever lived. And, of course, he was referring to Socrates. The Athenian men coming together, and they met about ten times a year in their uh, forum there in Athens, had voted either to uh, exile Socrates or to require his life. And, of course, Socrates refused to be exiled and took his own life. So in, in Plato's understanding, that's what good democracy is. So we don't really need something like that. And so he wrote his book, The Republic, which I do not have time to get into here, except to say that if you were to read The Republic today, it would probably remind you in some ways of contemporary socialism or even communism. And so there's a sense in which Marx sort of can claim a pedigree in in a certain way back to Plato. Now, Plato had a student. His name was Aristotle. They agreed on many things. Um, As best as we can tell, Uh, Aristotle studied with Plato for 20 years, Uh, took a long time to graduate in those days. The first 10 years, he probably agreed with his mentor on most things, but in the last 10, he um, sort of didn't. He moved in a different direction. Uh, 
And it is to Plato, it is to Aristotle that we owe the term politics. Of course, it comes from the word polis, which is just the Greek word for city. But what Aristotle was attempting to do was to articulate several different possible approaches to human beings living together in community. For him, it was not just one possible model, as it had been for the Athenians, and also as it had been for Plato. But that instead, there are several possible models that would work depending on whether your nation is landlocked, whether it is an island, whether it is large, whether it is small, whether it's in the mountains, and so on. But Aristotle gives us the notion of politics, and like so many other areas, uh, as someone has uh, said, the uh, work of later philosophers is to some degree nothing more than footnotes to Plato and Aristotle, and there's something to be said about that. Now, what about the Bible itself? What does the Bible have to say about politics? It doesn't use the term. It doesn't address the issue in any kind of a way that we would think about it today. And it, it uh, approaches the issue of how people live together in community in a, in a different way, depending on what part of the Bible you find yourself in. Of course, the Old Testament people of Israel eventually were uh, intended by God to be a theonomic community. God was the king. This is the lesson that they learned coming out of the Exodus, entering into the promised land. They are a theocratic community led by priests and prophets. But, of course, as we know, the people were not content with that. And eventually, about four centuries later, they demanded a king. They were still intended to be a theocratic community under the leadership of a king, but that king uh, had very specific limitations and requirements placed upon him. Deuteronomy chapter 17 spells those out. I will not take the time to read that tonight. But among other things, it says that the king, when you finally have one, should not be a lover of money, a lover of horses, or a lover of many women. He should have his own Torah. And the implications of Deuteronomy 17 seem to be that he would have written it out for himself, made, his, made himself his own copy of Torah, and he should live by the word of God. Now, we know that none of the kings ever lived up to that. David came the closest, and during significant parts of David's life, he seemed to exemplify that, but he was a failure as well. well by the time we move into the New Testament, and, and here's, an area, here's a, a point of interpretation where I think we ought to differ with our Presbyterian theonomist friends, as well as our Baptist theonomist friends. I have met a few Baptist theonomists along the way. Not quite sure how they reconcile the hermeneutic, but they nonetheless attempt to do so. Um, that will, by the time we pass from the old covenant community and the, the day of Pentecost has come, and the work of the Holy Spirit is now poured out on all persons, irrespective of whether or not they have uh, adhered to the Mosaic Law, been circumcised, uh, kept the uh, Jewish rituals or whatever. Instead, we have now a great multitude of all tongues and languages and races and so on, which I think requires us. I say I think that you'll take about 30 pages of reading in our book. Uh, to demonstrate that, but it seems clear to me that now we don't have a theonomic community because of the church, the body of Christ, 
is made up of people who live in all kinds of separate and disparate political situations. And so we have this progressive revelation, or we have this covenantal shift that takes place between Old and New Testaments that I think that we have to account for. Um, When it comes to dealing with uh, the history, again, of understanding politics, we have a couple of important contributions in the church, one that comes from Augustine, and Augustine, of course, wrote as magnum opus, the great city of God. And he argued that there are two cities in the world, the city of man. And by the way, this is not just the political world versus the ecclesiastical world. That would be a misreading of uh, Augustine. The city of man is made up of all of those persons who live in our world today for whom love for self is preeminent. But then there is the city of God. And the city of God is made up of all of those persons for whom love of God is preeminent. So we don't have it nicely divided into, well, those people live over there or in the city of man, and these people here in the city of God. In fact, you might walk into a church service on a Sunday morning. Augustine certainly understood this and be able to at least think in your heart, some of these people are not in the city of God. Or as my mama used to put it, not everybody that sings about heaven is going there. So Augustine looks for the development of a community in his prayer. And by the way, sometimes Augustine is, uh, it is stated that Augustine is the first one to present us with a uh, post-millennial understanding. He was not intending to do that, but probably one of the natural results of his thesis in the city of God is that as the church flourishes and leads more and more people out of the city of man into the city of God, that at some point along the way, the millennial kingdom will be established. Of course, that is the way that hundreds of years of Augustinian interpreters believed that he was getting at. Thomas Aquinas also made his own contributions. By this time, because um, the church has become almost coterminous with Europe, that is virtually all persons living in Western Europe have um, are part of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. All persons virtually living in Eastern Europe are part of the Orthodox Catholic Church. And so what Thomas has to deal with is a whole set of new Uh, questions and new ideas beyond even what Augustine had dealt with. And so what Thomas wants to to do is to propose the idea that we can have Christian kings and that we can have Christian magistrates and that the people should be determined that whoever the political ruler is in the land, those people should be serving God in Christ and they ought to make, make sure that they enact policies uh, that are attempting to do just that. Now, if he, if he could have brought Augustine forward in time, 800 years, and had a debate with him, Augustine, in all likelihood, would have said, well, that's not going to happen because of the depravity of man. Uh, Aquinas agreed with Augustine on the whole issue of depravity, but still believed that there could be something that we might call a Christian commonwealth, led by a Christian monarch. By the time we get to John Calvin, Calvin wants to modify those ideas a little bit. And remember that the context in which Calvin did his work was a city, a city and the farming environments 
in proximity to that city, the city of Geneva. And Calvin, in Book 4 of the Institutes, Book 4, uh, chapters, Chapter uh, 20, is where you'll find Calvin's development of his understanding of politi- politics and political institutions. And he wants to argue that we truly can have a godly magistrate uh, magistracy, but we can, we can control that because there's not that many of us here. We're a city-state, in a sense. And therefore, we will know these magistrates that we elect. And so for Calvin, uh, the key to uh, having a community blessed by God is to be led by godly magistrates and godly pastors. And, uh, and this was his primary contribution. Of course, uh, a student, not specifically of John Calvin's, but a student of his theology by the name of John Witherspoon came to America in the uh, 1750s, and Witherspoon became advisor to some young men who were looking at the possibility of, um, of building a Christian commonwealth in the New World on the west side of the Atlantic. Uh, Witherspoon assured them that if there was a tyrant back in England, that they would, re- they would receive even the blessing of Calvin himself if they were to break with that tyrant. Uh, and so when you look at all of that, you can see where this sort of evolution in politics has taken us. And I will mention one last thing before we talk about economics, because it's so germane to where we are today. Um, when we leave Calvin and leave the New American experience experiment behind, uh, which was in many ways an attempt to incorporate Calvinistic ideas uh, into the whole political strain, uh, when, when we pass through that, we come to the 19th century with a Prussian philosopher by the name of Georg Hegel. Now, Hegel didn't really care about what God thought about Christian commonwealth or what the Bible taught about a Christian commonwealth because Hegel didn't believe that those things were really the word of God. The Bible is not the word of God. Hegel believed his own philosophy was in some sense the word of God. Now, I want to be careful how I say that here. I don't want to uh, say something inappropriate about Hegel, but there's a place in his encyclopedia where he writes these words out, and he says, my fingers are writing the very words of God. Now, why would Hegel believe that? Hegel believed that because he believed that inevitable inevitable progress had brought Europe to this place, had brought Europe to Hegel, and he is the history of philosophy and the philosophy of history all bound up into one thing. And one of the most important contributions, not positive contribution, but important contributions that Hegel made was when he argued uh, that the modern day political structure should depend upon educated elites who can, in some real sense, establish the community of God in this world. But it can only be done by the educated elites. And of course, uh, among those who fell under the penumbra of Hegel were people like Woodrow Wilson, who took his doctorate at uh, Johns Hopkins from two men who had actually studied political science with Hegel uh, themselves. So politics, it's had this long and torturous history, uh, weaving one way and another. It's been very difficult for the people of God at times to understand and know whether they are being submissive to a political structure that's appropriate. 
mean, think about this contrast before we move on to talk about economics. Is it appropriate to be obedient to the government? Well, most of us would say yes, it is. Paul says that in Romans chapter 13. What if the government is King David? He is the king who is sort of at the top of the heap. Well, that's not so bad. David certainly was a little bit bloodthirsty as a warrior, not a very good uh, 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 teacher to his children, and of course had a little libidinous trouble somewhere along the way. But instead of thinking about David as your king, think about Nebuchadnezzar. Should we obey the king? Should we be submissive to his leadership? Obviously, those are two very, very different contexts, and the church has had to determine how it relates to David the king and to Nebuchadnezzar the king all throughout its history. We'll not make any comments on the current uh, persons running for office as to whether they are David or Nebuchadnezzar. I'll leave that for your own interaction later on. Now, that brings us to the issue of economics because that's the second uh, sort of leg of our little table here. Economics, and I, I really don't have but just a few moments to say something about this. But let me just say that uh, over time, the concept of a, an economy uh, that would develop in any particular place, any particular nation, city, state, or whatever, um, is the idea of how we can make exchange with each other and what is a just form of exchange. In fact, by the time we get to the Middle Ages in the scholastic, uh, scholastic theology, and specifically with Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas becomes the first actual economist in the modern understanding of what economics means, because Thomas, in his various writings, understood these four points. Here are the four points of what economics must entail. First of all, economics entails for whom a transaction is taking place. For whom a translation, in other words, who benefits from this transaction? That's, that's question number one. Question number two is, what is exchanged? And obviously there have been all kinds of ways you could think about exchanges in the history of the world. Bartering, you know, I will trade you two goats for your cow. I will trade you three donkeys for your daughter, whatever the exchange might be. But there has to be something exchanged in order for an economic transaction to take place. Thirdly, the product of the production of the goods to be sold. So you have to think about uh, some things to be sold. It could be a service, but even if it's a service that you're selling, you still have to think about who is best capable of providing that service. But in a you know, good part of world history, what we're talking about here is pottery, and uh, a variety of other things that we need simply to be able to uh, make our way in the world. So for whom is it taking place? What is exchanged? Uh, how do we understand the production of the goods to be sold? And fourthly, equilibrium. And equilibrium has to do with uh, some kind of uh, appropriateness in the exchange process. Now, Thomas was the first philosopher to spell it out just like this. And when I say just like this, I don't mean there are, it's all in one place. It's not in like volume 45, question one, you know, answers one through four of his Summa Theologiae. You got to hunt around. And that's the way it tended to be with a lot of older theologians anyway. 
Uh, you might take you two years if you didn't have a good index to find out exactly what Thomas believed about this. But Thomas does incorporate in his writings these four issues. And as time went by, right down to our very time today, uh, economists would argue those are the four most important issues. So very briefly again, for whom is the transaction taking place? What is exchanged? Uh, what is the nature of the production of goods to be sold or services to be sold? And then finding an appropriate equilibrium in the exchange process. Now, Thomas didn't go much farther than that. He identified those things, but it was not his goal in mind necessarily to give a, a, uh, a sort of uh, instruction or exhortation in how we might do those things. By the way, by the time uh, Thomas faded off the scene, uh, the, the, the Catholic scholastics who were living in his wake gathered together at the University of Salamanca over a period of time and further developed these ideas. Now, uh, among those who later would read the writings of Thomas and the other philosophers at Salamanca who had identified these four parts of the economic system uh, one important person would read their writings later on, and he was a Scottish uh, professor of moral philosophy. And um, he was teaching at Glasgow uh, in the mid to late 18th century, and his name, of course, was Adam Smith. And Adam Smith took these ideas. Now, I, I want to make sure that I don't overemphasize the importance of, of Adam Smith. He doesn't really necessarily argue for all four of these points, but what he does do is he spends about a thousand pages writing a book, uh, and in that book, it's, it's actually the first book in the history of the West that deals with the thing that occupies most of us for a great deal of our time, day in and day out, and that is how we make a living. Adam Smith is the first person really to try to understand how all of that works. Now, many of you are familiar with Adam Smith. I'm not going to go through all of the details here at, uh, in any way. But Adam Smith believed that systems of economics left to themselves would eventually achieve a kind of equilibrium in all four of these areas. Uh, he believed that, that government should stay out. Uh, there was a, a French uh, movement, a French philosophical movement at the time uh, called les economistes, just the French word for the economists. And uh, one of the primary uh, members of les economistes was dealing with the Dauphin of France on one occasion, and France was having some financial trouble. The Dauphin was, of course, is the crown prince. And the Dauphin turned to this French philosopher and he said, you know, if you had my problems with trade and with dealing with the Spanish and dealing with the English and, and how this is affecting our, company, our country economically, what would you do? And the philosopher said, nothing. Nothing. Just let it go and it will achieve a natural equilibrium. And when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, it's essentially what he was saying. Now, I want to be, make sure that we understand Adam Smith was not saying that it is, a, it is appropriate 
for governments or corporations or unions or guilds or anything else to take advantage of their situation. His point was that if you leave things alone, they will find a natural balancing point on their own. And, and don't get the government involved, overly involved in manipulating the system. That's, that was the point that he was trying to make. At his time, England, of course, is beginning really to emerge on the scene in the Industrial Revolution. And uh, he's writing for the English as much as anyone else. And he's essentially going to say, leave it alone. Or in the words of John Lennon, let it be, let it be. And if you let it be, it'll be okay. It may take some time, but it'll be okay. Now, of course, that question of whether the economy would be okay will go through a severe testing for about 150 years after the time of Adam Smith. Industrial Revolution created all kinds of problems, especially in England at first. England was the first country in the Western world to undergo industrialization. We sometimes think it was the U.S., but U.S. was about 30 or 40 years behind England in the year 1800. England had uh, people who had, uh, in an entrepreneurial spirit, come up with different ways of, of turning uh, fibers into thread, of weaving thread into cloth, of uh, all kinds of different things that people need on an everyday basis. But, of course, they had to locate those factories someplace, didn't they? And if you've read Charles Dickens, uh, you know something about the negative dark impact of those factories in London. I always found it interesting, not always, but for a long time I found it interesting that uh, many of us enjoy reading the novels of Dickens or at least watching the television movie presentation. Maybe not reading them all is not always that joyous. David Copperfield's about a thousand pages. But we like Dickens and we hate Marx. And yet Dickens and Marx are basically saying the same thing. It's just that Marx didn't have Tiny Tim, who could say at the end of Das Kapital, God bless us every one. If Marx had included that, we'd probably think better of him. But if you think about the approach to the economy that you get out of Dickens, this critique of industrialization based on exploitation, uh, that results in premature death and disfigurement of many, many people. Uh, it's the same case that Marx will make in 1848 when he co-authored the Communist Manifesto with Friedrich Engels and later uh, in the two volumes of Capital, the first of which published in his lifetime, the second of which published posthumously. And Calvin thereby, or Marx thereby articulates uh, this approach to economics. So let me, let me kind of tie this together here. When you think about economic systems today and the way governments relate to economic systems, um, you might look at a political science book. I brought one with me here that's a really good polit political science book. But uh, you might look at a political science book and it says there have been 19 different forms of political economy that have been suggested. And remember that political economy, we're just coming to the use of that term right here, political economy is simply a term that describes how any governing body relates to the economic system around it. Once we get into Adam Smith and Marx and a couple of others, we're going to see these political economics issues rising to the fore. And so uh, the big three, as we might put it, in economics would be, number one, Adam Smith, whose approach was let it be. 
It'll work itself out. It may take 10 years in a certain area. It may take 20. But you know what? As long as the government doesn't get involved in over-regulation and the government doesn't get involved in favoring one part of uh, the economic transaction process over a different part, as long as the government doesn't get involved and grant special privileges to its own cronies, who then sort of grease the palm of the politicians who are in power, as long as those things don't happen, over time things will work themselves out. So that's Adam Smith, 1776. Karl Marx, 1848 and later in the 1870s in Capital, argued that uh, as good as free market systems were, and by the way, it's interesting when you read Marx, he says the best thing that's happened uh, economically and politically up to this time is the development of free market econ- economics. He had, he had two cheers, not three, but two cheers for Adam Smith, about whom he has a lot to say in Capital. Uh, but, but Marx said, ultimately, Adam Smith was too optimistic because what's going to happen is this. Uh, corporations and manufacturers will continue to crank out goods and services and charge as much as they can get for those goods and services. And, there's no, and if the government doesn't step in and do something about it, then they're just going to keep doing that ad infinitum, ad nauseum. And it's an unself-reforming system. This was Marx's idea, but Marx further held the sort of idealistic notion that if you just... Uh, if you eliminate the government, if you eliminate uh, those who are in control of the uh, process of production, the means of production, in his case, whom he would call the bourgeoisie, or the wealthy people, the wealthy industrialists of his day, if we could just get rid of them, everything would be okay. Because the common guy out there, he just wants to you know, have a happy life doesn't have any illusions about taking over somebody else's property, doesn't have any illusions about cheating other people, doesn't have any illusions about taking another man's wife, doesn't have any illusions about killing to get what he wants. And once the political structure is removed and once the economic structure, those who uh, control the means of production are, are chastened, and by the way, we have to include one, a third element in that chastening, and that is religion. Because as you have heard probably many times, uh, Marx is the person who said religion is the opiate of the political structure we have now, the opiate of the people. What do you mean by that? He meant that the people who possess the means of production, the industrialists, uh, along with the governmental structure, those who are in political charge, uh, employ the assistance of the clergy in order con- to control the people, to keep them doped up. That's why opiate of the people. And his, his essential idea here was that, that priests and bishops should have their, at least as part of their responsibility, to stand before their congregations on a Sunday and say, we know that the government has trodden you under. We know that the king has conscripted your sons and taken them to an unholy war where they have died. We know that the bourgeoisie have uh, made it so that you have to live in a tiny little hovel and not able to feed your family, not able able to take care of sicknesses when they come your way. But here's the thing that you can be grateful for. The meek shall inherit the earth.
One of these days, that baron up on the hill or that fat cat industrialist who's in charge of the, the lace factory in London, he's going to die. He's going to hell. But you will inherit the earth. You'll inherit everything then. So Marx said we have to get rid of those three things, government, bourgeoisie, and the church. That was his approach. And then if, once we do that, people are free. So a very different approach to dealing with the economic issues than uh, Adam Smith had had. But we have to turn to a, a third individual here. Uh, and this third individual was someone who, uh, who came along and, ex- and developed his theory essentially in the context of the Great Depression of the uh, 20th century. And um, what Marx had been saying all along was this. Capitalism, free market economics, they are unreformable from the inside. But by the time we turned into the 20th century, there were people who were proving that to be wrong. One of them was a guy named Henry Ford, who beginning about 1912 decided that he was going to pay his workers a living wage, whereas the average worker in a big American city at that time made about a dollar fifty or two dollars um, actually made about a dollar a day for dollar fifty a day for working. Henry Ford said this, I'm gonna pay my workers five dollars a day. Now that doesn't sound like a whole lot to us, right? But five dollars a day when the guy that's working for Ransom Dodge over here is making a buck and a half, well you're gonna quit working for Ransom Dodge and go to work for Henry Ford. Doing essentially the same kind of work, but he's gonna pay you three times as much. And in so doing, Henry Ford demonstrated that the free market economic system was at least potentially reformable from the inside out. But, of course, Marx had not only argued that it's unreformable from the inside out, but that it would encounter problems, problems along the way that would ultimately be unsolvable. And when the Great Depression followed hard on the heels of the crash of the stock market in October of 1929. Marxists everywhere rubbed their hands in glee. Here it is. Let's watch how long it takes. And, of course, we know that if you look at it in an overall sense from our perspective, it took 10 years to dig out of that. And so during the midst of that, in 1936, a British intellectual by the name of John Maynard Keynes wrote a book in which... (coughs) (laughs) <laughs> in which he dealt with these <coughs> very issues. And what he wanted to say in this book is, you know, it's not really Smith and it's not really Marx, a pox on both their houses. Instead, what we need, we don't need the government to take control of the economy and be, um, be in control to the point that the government owns the means of production. This was Marx's theory. Government must own the means of production, take it out of the hands of the bourgeoisie. On the other hand, we, we don't want to take the Adam Smith view that just says, let it be, baby. Let it, let it just, we may have 10 years of suffering, but we're all going to be okay in the long run. Keynes probably would have said, although I don't know that this is an, an exact quote, that's great, but you don't eat in the long run, you eat in the short run. So Keynes uh, presented a model which we might call the sort of government. Uh, administration model in which he called for something of Marx and something of Smith. So let's find a way to bring these two guys, you know, together. Let's make a marriage 
between Mr. Marks and Mr. Smith. Of course, this was a long time before you could actually have done that. Uh, but nonetheless, let's see how they might work together. And essentially, he wants to place into the hands of the government the ability to manipulate the market, to raise interest rates on money that is borrowed, to lower interest rates on money that is borrowed, to make credit more available, to make credit less available. And that if we have very smart people, can you think of Hegel again here at this point? If you have very, very smart people educated in the Hegelian understanding, the German idealistic understanding, then those people will be smart enough to be able to ma manipulate any economy to take uh, care of whatever problems that we might have. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take about 15 minutes here, and I'm going to open it up for you to ask some questions. But the 15, in the 15 minutes, I want to talk about where does the Bible fit into all this? Where do we fit into this? And I will, I will echo the words that I've heard and read in many different works over the last 10 or so years that I have been uh, deeply engaged in researching these issues. The Bible doesn't present us with any specific form of government, except theonomy in the Old Testament. And the Bible doesn't present us with one system of economics over, above, and any other. And if we think of political economy, which is the phrase I've been using here, if we think of political economy as the way in which any, government, any given governmental entity relates to the economic production and system around it, that's probably a fairly good, uh, fairly... Uh, not so much precise, but at least a, a window into what the issue of po political economy actually is, then what do we find in the Bible? And the answer is we don't find specific answers. Paul was not writing in Romans chapter 13 trying to deal with the whole question of uh, how philosophically we can understand the Roman Empire as being oppressive to Christianity and at the same time find ourselves uh, perhaps stepping out of some kind of civil disobedience to the Roman society. But if, if we read Scripture, I think, carefully enough, we're going to find some trends. And again, we want to move away from the Old Testament at this point, and my Presbyterian friends will hate me for that. Uh, but we have, as Baptists, generally a different hermeneutic. We don't look for answers to those issues, just as we don't look for answers to the issues of how to worship, primarily, in the Old Testament. We look to the New Testament. All right, so we find that Paul tells the people in his church in Rome, Romans, Romans chapter 13, in the church in Rome, Romans 13, um, that God has appointed the government as a minister of the sword and that God uses governments in order to enact his will. Now, Paul was not stupid. Paul was not blind. Paul was not... Uh, incapable of understanding the fact that governments could become demonic. He knew they could. They'd already been demonic to him before the prison epistles. Uh, but nonetheless, he, in his missionary journeys, he had often been mistreated by governments. But nonetheless, we submit to the governmental authority. I find it interesting in Rome, Revelation 13, he doesn't say obey the governmental authority. He says submit. And submit would be a a concept that might mean obey, but it also might mean 
Place yourself under the authority of the government when it comes to issues of your faith. And if they reward you, fine. If they imprison you, that is fine as well. You've submitted yourself to that authority. So I think that Paul gives us some good uh, perspective there. And, of course, he may have developed that perspective from what he knew about the early church as the apostles uh, throughout the early chapters of Acts were on more than one occasion incarcerated for preaching the message of the resurrection about Jesus. Um, so there's this idea that we submit, that we, but that we obey God. We can't let the government tell us, you can't obey God. Sorry, we're not going to let that happen. Now, we might have to be discerning and discriminating and careful about how exactly we understand what it means to obey God. And let me give you one example of that because that's all I have time for. School prayer in the 1960s. A series of court cases ruled against school prayer in various places in American public schools in the the 1960s. One of the most obvious cases took place in 1961. And what was happening there was this. There was a morning prayer. Now, When you think about that prayer, the thing you need to understand is this. The prayer was written by the State Department of Education, the government. The prayer was prayed by an administrator in the Department of Education, a principal or a school teacher. The third thing that you would want to understand is that students were required to participate in that school prayer. Now, the grounds upon which that, that school prayer issue was challenged were violation of the First Amendment, uh, specifically the, uh, the Establishment Clause, that this, in effect, establishes a kind of religious tradition and religious faith because it's written by the government, prayed by the government, and mandated on all students. And, of course, I want you to be careful when you bring this up in your home church sometime in the near future, but let me just tell you that I agree with the court on that particular case. Uh, If I'd had a child, if I were living in Salt Lake City in 1960 or 61, and my child went off to school, uh, knowing the kind of prayer that would probably be mandated by the state, prayed by a state employee, and required compliance on the part of all of the children, I'd be homeschooling, even before the term homeschool was actually out there. That's what I would have been attempting to do. Now, when a group of people simply gather together before a basketball game, and you've got a few players and a couple of parents down there, and they want to pray for the team before the basketball game, that is not an establishment of religion. But the kind of prayer cases that came in 61 and 63 and other, other times and other places, I think those did... Uh, they, they did establish precedents which, uh, which were not justifiable biblically. In, in the Bible, what is prayer? It's not just something written out by a government. It's not just something repeated by rote by a person who it's your turn today to do this. It's not just something the kids just sort of stand there bleary-eyed and you know, repeat some part of the prayer after it's already over. That, that's not really what prayer is. So, so we have to understand that there are, there are technically difficult and complicated issues 
that are related with the way the church relates to the political economic structure in our world uh, today. I'm proud to be a Baptist. And the Baptists have a long heritage of standing for truth, of standing for justice in the midst of an unjust society, of standing for freedom of conscience and freedom of belief and non-coercion of belief. And you can find this if you go all the way back. You can go all the way back to uh, Helwes and Smith in 1609, 1610, 1611. They stood for truth. They stood for freedom to express the truth in the way that they they saw fit. And at least at least Thomas Helwes paid for it by imprisonment. If you bring that on forward into our current time, we could see the same thing happening over and over again uh, with people like Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not not in agreement with all of the lifestyle issues that have become sort of associated with. Martin Luther King Jr., probably the man was made a lot of mistakes and was uh, a sinner, just like, uh, not a sinner just like me, hopefully, but like me, he was a sinner. But he was also a man who stood for justice. He was not enamored of Marxism. He had studied Marxism. He'd studied under Reinhold Niebuhr at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And Niebuhr was kind of a closet socialist, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said no. We're not going to look to the government to change these things in our country. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to pray to God and we're going to protest in such a way that God will change the hearts of the people and specifically the young people. Martin Luther King died from an assassin's bullet in April of 1968. I was 13 years old. I remember hearing about it at school or right after school. I remember talking about it at the dinner table. My father was a transplanted southerner. He was from deep southern Missouri. My father had no use for Martin Luther King Jr., but I remember us having this conversation and me saying to him, Dad, this is a man who had a prophetic insight, struck down in the prime of his life, but he's a man who understood that the political economic system in which we live can either be oppressive to the church or it can be one in which the church is allowed to be the church in any way that it possibly can be. wish we had time to go into more detail about some of those specifically Baptist people who stood uh, for freedom in the political economic realm. But I'm going to cut it off here with 20 minutes just to see if you have a question or two to ask or a comment to make or a political speech. Everybody else is doing it this week. so. <laughs> can always hum the tune from Jeopardy for 20 minutes if you'd like. Well, thank you, Dr. Brand, for a very insightful, engaging talk. Um, wanted to know if there was any more development of, uh, of Aquinas' thought prior to um, Smith, in particular maybe William of Ockham or Duns Scotus, and what text would Aquinas appeal to maybe in his Summa in developing those beliefs? Yeah, uh, there are, uh, there, to answer the second question first, uh, I have footnoted in this book, 
you know, blind plug right there, blatant plug. <laughs> I have footnote in this book, the places where Thomas draws his information is not just from the Summa. Some, one, one quote comes from one of his commentaries on a scriptural text. Another comes from uh, a pamphlet that he wrote. And so uh, it comes across in a number of ways. And that's why I said Thomas doesn't spell all this out by saying this chapter is about political economy. This chapter is about economics, anything like that. He's the kind of guy you have to read around, as many ancient and medieval writers were like that as well. I read Augustine, and what you're hoping to find when you read one of Augustine's books is, okay, in this chapter we're going to stick to this issue, we're going to look at every verse. No, you've got to read all of it at some point in order to get it. And that's where the same thing with Thomas on this particular issue. So you've got to kind of go at, at different ways. If you want, if you would email me, uh, my email address is. I'd be happy to uh, send you the citations in uh, Thomas's writings where you can look up his his contribution. In fact, I would just probably cut and paste the three or four pages out of the book and email it back to you. I'd be glad to do that. Good question. Anyone else? Yes. Um, I I noticed recently the controversy uh, into varsity are having with uh, the movement Black Lives Matter, and uh, you touched on some racial issues, and I was wondering if you could give us your take on that. Um, was that a wise move? Uh, what do you think? Well, um, let me let me begin with a caveat, and the caveat is I'm white. In case you hadn't noticed, I'm not sure how authoritatively I can speak for or even to the uh, black community. Uh, but I would say this: if we, if we look at, at patterns of uh, of the way that it, that these these Tough issues have been dealt with in the past. I have a whole lot more preference for Martin Luther King than for Al Sharpton. Uh, King was a man who believed it was important to work with the existing economic and political structures and to change men's hearts. And I, I, there's a, a place in the Taylor Branch uh, three-volume biography of King in volume two, I believe it is. I forget what page number. Where, he, he's, where King is talking with one of his professors, and he specifically says, uh, I'm not going to reach anyone over 40 who grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line, but I will reach their sons. And I think that that's what he did. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 61 years old. Uh, I have conversations with people who are roughly my contemporaries. Many of them grew up in the south. I didn't grow up in the south. I grew up in Colorado, but my dad was a southerner. And so we had these debates many, many times uh, over the dinner table. But I think that that's exactly what King did. He affected us. But when it comes to someone like the Reverend Al uh, and earlier Jesse Jackson, though he has been more chastened in the last few years for whatever reason, um, there seems to be here not a call for equality, but a, a call for the recognition of more of a supreme role. Uh, and I, I think that 
that Dr. King, if he were to, to be able to sort of show up in a, you know, Bob and Ted's excellent time machine somewhere here and look at what's happening at the University of Missouri, uh, Dr. King spent his entire life trying to create a colorblind society. What's happening in Missouri at the university, at least among some who are there, is the exact opposite of that. They want special favors for people who are observably minorities. Now, I am very sympathetic to the plight of minorities. I grew up in a, a small suburb of Denver that was half Hispanic. 40, my high school was 49% Hispanic, 49% white, and 2% other, which we had a Japanese girl and one black guy. I guess they were the other. Um, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, sympathetic toward their concerns. I think that we needed to hear that. We needed the voice of a Frederick Douglass in the 1860s going to speak to uh, President Lincoln about the plight of his people. We needed a Lincoln. We may not agree with everything uh, Abraham Lincoln did in, in uh, the whole manumission of slaves and the changing of the social structure and the invasion of the South. We could debate that uh, you know, all, night, all night long if you want to. I, I have sort of arguments on both sides. But the point is that a redress needed to take place. You're never going to get a redress that will affect 99.999% of people who were part of the oppressive group in the society. There's always going to be some people out there who are still full of the devil or full of hatred. Or they grew up in a home where their granddaddy was, you know, the, uh, the grand wizard of the KKK. And they'd kind of like to have that prominent position for themselves. It's always going to be there, but it's going to be there on every side. And I think that to, to the degree that many of us, and I'm sure all of us in this room, at one level or another have been impacted by the work of a Dr. King or someone like that, that his, uh, he was successful. I think if he were here today, he'd say, I'm, I'm proud to have been part of this. Doesn't mean it's all right everywhere. It's not. And you can go to some places in both the South and the North. I have a, I have a son who uh, had his own country and Western band for about five years, and he would travel into cities, and he would tell me stories about the racism still to be found in some of those places, that there would be white people inside of a club and three or four African-Americans would come in and how they would be talked about. That still happens, and it probably will, uh, you know, forever. But the fact is that King's vision to a large degree has been fulfilled. And I think that that's the way to fulfill it. I think saying black lives matter, and that's all we can say, is just wrong. It's myopic. They do matter, but so does everybody else's life. I don't know if I scratched the itch the way you wanted me to, but you probably are saying, well, I could have said that. Well, then why'd you ask, you know? Someone else? Uh, yeah, thank you. I, uh, I hope this question is not too uh, tan tangential. Tan am I saying that right? Tangential? Uh, but I think it touches upon some of these issues, I suppose. And as you're going through different economic systems, different political systems, as it relates to the economy, and how the church relates to those governmental systems, and I guess I'm... Uh, I'm an Old Testament guy, 
trying to think through different narratives in the Bible where these come up. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, is that better? I don't know. Okay. Uh, I guess my, my question is at what point do uh, where, where in, say, history or where in, in the biblical narrative do we find a warrant for the church, I'll say as the church, to offer armed resistance to a governmental system? And do we, uh, do we find that? And I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to, is there any sort of, depending on the answer to that, I guess, is there a critique on this, I'll say, sort of a particular American phenomenon of, uh, you know, uh, an armed citizenry that that, You're in about Oregon. that, that that in many places the church supports and endorses. You're talking about Oregon right now? I'll say Oregon. We could say Oregon right now, but I'm, I have other things in mind, I suppose, that hit a little closer to home here, but just of okay. church, you know, churches specifically arming their... Uh, I would say the church, as the church, does not fulfill its mission by taking up arms against those who are not part of the church or those who they perceive to be the enemy. Taking up, the, now, taking up arms might be a necessary thing for an individual to do. I have weapons at my house. We live in, out in the country. We are on 125 acres, and it's about a half a mile back off the road to get to our place, and that you have to be going there. There's nothing. The road stops right there. And my wife was having a hard time sleeping last night, and she came into the bedroom where I was asleep, and she said, Honey, there's somebody on the front porch. Well, that never happens out there at night, because, like I said, you got to be going there to get there. So I fetched my Taurus 740 Slimline out of the drawer next to my bed and headed toward the front door, flicked on the front porch light, and came face-to-face with a possum. <laughs> Eating the leftover dog food. Um, I would ne- I would always say that I, as a husband and as a father and a grandfather, have the right and even the um, the stewardship to protect my family, but not to be an aggressor, but to protect them from someone who would take their lives. But that's not the church. That's me as an individual Christian man. You may have a different opinion than that. The church is nowhere given the mandate to take up arms against the government. Not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, but remember we've had this hermeneutical transformation through Pentecost that negates the Old Testament approaches to these things as being normative for the church today. One of the things I was I wanted to do, and I didn't think about it until we came in here tonight, I was going to have a whiteboard because uh, I'm not technologically advanced enough to use uh, power power uh, point. I can't even tell you what it is. <laughs> I was going to put a board up here in which I would ha- draw a vertical line all the way down through the board and a horizontal line all the way across. So you're making four squares or four rectangles out of the board. And on the horizontal axis, we might have something like government ownership of the economy. That's the horizontal, that's the, I'm sorry, that's the vertical axis on the left-hand side. 
on the horizontal axis across the bottom, it would have a term like governmental redistribution of wealth. So you have four corners. You've got this corner down here on the bottom left, where it has very little or no government ownership of the means of production, and also very little government redistribution of wealth. All right. And if we think about who might fit there, we would probably come to the conclusion of saying the U.S. would fit there in the early 19th century. Maybe not today, but it would fit there then. Switzerland, to a large degree, at least until recently, would have fit there because it did not promote government ownership of means of production, nor did it promote a, a governmental redistrib redistribution of goods and services that is mandated on all people. But let's go up from, from the bottom left square to the top left square. And remember that up here what we have is, uh, because the vertical axis is government ownership of the means of production. So if we go up to that top square that's on the left, we're talking about countries in which the government owns or at least owns a, a large portion of and controls the means of production. Now, we would put in that square pretty much any state that would be communism, although we're not done with them yet. Uh, we might put uh, Brazil in there in the, 18, in the 1980s. 1980s, Brazil, Brazil put on a strict uh, moratorium on imports and exports. Uh, in, the, in 1984, I think it was, Brazil passed a law forbidding the importation of computers into Brazil from any outside country. And what, what they were hoping to do was to turn Brazilian engineers into computer whizzes and therefore to raise up the economy. But instead what happened was those Brazilian engineers who were supposed to be the guys that would really raise up the economy were Brazilian guys having a siesta all afternoon all right, because they weren't going to make any more money by churning out a really good computer than anybody else. And it didn't take about two years before Brazil was 10 years behind the rest of the world in computer technology. But this government owned the means of production. Sometimes we call that statism. Okay, so that's the, the bottom square on the left, top square on the left. Bottom square on the right, remember that horizontal axis is uh, government as redistribu redistributing, redistributing the uh, goods and services that are, uh, that are provided. Here we would put sort of the socialist, maybe especially the democratic socialist countries. Uh, you'll sometimes hear, oh, well, you should live in Denmark. The average salary in Denmark is $55,000 a year, and they have one of the best uh, health care systems in the world. And that's true, but that's not all that, can, that needs to be said because their, their average federal income tax is about 30%. Add state income taxes and local taxes onto that. And those people who make 60000 a year are only bringing home about 30, maybe 25. And one of the reasons for this is there has been low, there's been high unemployment and low employment of especially younger men and women growing up in Danish society since the end of World War II. All right, so they, the government has to take that away. And by the way, there's a guaranteed income. You don't have to work a year or you have to work a day in your life 
in Denmark to have your own apartment. May not be the nicest one around to be able to eat the food you want to eat. And it's probably going to be spaghetti and ramen and that kind of stuff more often than it will be, you know, New York Strip. Um, and to have some form of transportation, though it would probably be a bicycle instead of an automobile. But you can live like that if you can stand it for the rest of your life. Never work a day because that's the safety net. But what happens is they have to take the money from producing people. The government does this, and they forcibly take that money from pr productive people, and they give it to these people over here who are not productive. I was reading something just this week by someone who said, you know, I've been studying socialism and capitalism for 50 years, and I've come to the conclusion that socialism is the more biblical model. Oh, really? You mean you all those places where, where the Lord says that the Pharisees should redistribute your wealth to the poor people or that the Roman uh, government should take away from those who are productive and give to poor Christians or give to poor other people. That's not there. Now, there's a major emphasis in Scripture, and your, Dr. Quarles and I were talking about this just before we came over, major emphasis in Scripture on the church caring for the poor, on families caring for the poor in their own family. Paul says any man that does not care for his own family is worse than an infidel. We might even have a sense in which the community would take some responsibility. Uh, Marvin Olasky wrote the book on, on American Compassion, The Tragedy of American Compassion. 25 years ago, a new edition came out just recently. And he has a nice little historical survey. He says before about 1800, when uh, in America, when people were poor and destitute, and they had sick folk in their family or whatever, you know who took care of them? Their family beginning around, and maybe to some degree the church, but mostly family, from around 1800 to about 1860 or so, and people were in that condition. Who took care of them? Well, for the most part, the church. And what that meant was people in the churches gave generously free will offerings to their churches to help Mrs. So-and-so and her three kids because Mr. So-and-so is a drunk and he doesn't go to work. So we're going to help Mrs. So-and-so out. We're going to make sure he doesn't get a dime of that to spend on alcohol. Um, but then around 1860 or 1870, Olasky says that, that those concerns began to infiltrate local governments, that is city governments. He chose in Philadelphia and Baltimore and other places where ordinances were passed. Um, and to some degree that was a redistribution, but it was a local redistribution. But to a large degree it, was, it still depended on philanthropic efforts, e efforts by those who lived in Philadelphia and Baltimore in New York City to help pay for uh, the problem of poverty. But after about around the time of the First World War and afterwards, especially to the time of the Great Depression and the years after, it has fallen upon the federal government. And the federal government, in order to do this, has to put, you, put a gun in your face and say, you're going to give us the money we want. Now, they don't literally put a gun in your face, although they might, uh, but they just take it out of your paycheck. Say, you owe us this much money to pay for the guy living in Appalachia. I pastored in Appalachia for two years, interim pastored, and uh, tragic situations of able-bodied man. Walking out on a Tuesday at 11 o'clock in the morning, here's this able-bodied, healthy guy sitting around in his shorts with no shirt on, flip-flops, drinking a beer and watching you know, some kind of program on television instead of going to work. And so what are we doing? We're 
we're paying our taxes so that he can stay home. Uh, that has no, no justification in the Bible. And we, we were talking specifically about Matthew 25 and Dr. Quarles. I don't want to misquote you, Dr. Quarles, but uh, I, I resonated with your interpretation that this, these are the brothers and the sisters. In other words, churches have a responsibility to care for those who are needy in their church. But it's not as if i got to care for the problems of some guy living in Appalachia who simply has never had a job and ain't never going to get a job. But i got to pay through the nose to help that person out. So when we think of this, this uh, bottom right corner, that's low government control of the means of production, but high government redistribution. All right, then we get to the top right corner, that's where you have the real chaos because you have government control of the means of production and government forcible redistribution of profits to those who, uh, who need the money. All right, so there you have Soviet Union, uh, there you have modern-day Cuba, there you have North Korea. Down at the bottom right where you have heavy redistribution but no statism, no government control or little government control of the means of production. Those are our social democracies in Europe, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and so on, uh, that do redistribute, but that don't own the means of production. So if you want to sort of set those up, so where, did, where should, according to the Bible, where should we be? Bottom left. That's my interpretation. The Holy Spirit gave it to me just a moment ago while I was sitting here. I, I translated it immediately from tongues into English, but that's it. And, uh, and that is where I think the church ought to be. But at the same time, we live in this country that where Americans are forcingly are, are increasingly being forced to move over to that right bottom square where we give more and more of the income that we make to people who are uh, incapable of doing that. And it's forced upon us by the federal government at the point of a barrel. It seems to me that's not a biblical model in any sense. All right, we might have time for one more question. All right, uh, Andrew, do I turn this over to you at this point? Dr. Quarles. Would you express your gratitude to Dr. Brand? I know this is a little unusual, but I would like to end tonight with an important prayer request. I think everyone here knows Dr. Chip Hardy, who teaches Old Testament and Hebrew. He is a dear friend. Uh, we talked together at Louisiana College for a couple of years before moving here. You probably know that his wife, Katie, has been battling cancer for about four years. She was diagnosed within just a few months of them moving to Louisiana College. And uh, when they moved here, they discovered some new treatments that have been very effective. Uh, but they have to return to Nashville uh, weekly, bi-weekly uh, for checkups. They had one yesterday. And uh, Chip just texted me and told me that they didn't get good news, that her blood work revealed some problems and they did an endoscopy.